Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, sponsored by ACR Poker, where this weekend we have the final Events in our Winter Online Super Series, the WAS, as I like to call it. And we don't care that it's not winter. We're doing the WAS in November this year because we just couldn't wait. We've got a $1.5 million guaranteed main event with a buy-in of $630 satellites running around the clock. So now is your chance to get in. On the action. My name is Clayton Fletcher and I am in New York City. Uh, this weekend, Saturday, November 25th, you can see me at Westside Comedy Club if you are interested. Uh, Sunday and Monday, I will be playing day two of several mystery bounty tournaments that were part of the aforementioned WAS. I also managed to make day two of the $66. guaranteed tournament. So I'm excited to get some day two action going, hopefully collect a few mystery bounty prizes. And yeah, I hope I see some of you guys online this weekend. We also have our free roll this Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern, hosted by TPE head honcho Derek Killingbird Tenbush. You can get all the details about the TPE free roll by joining our Discord for free. There's a link in the description to this podcast. So, yeah, it's a holiday here in the States, Thanksgiving, which is when we celebrate something about, I don't know, we eat a lot of turkey and we watch a lot of football and we take a few days off work. So I will be (laughs) engaging in all of that. And in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I want to start off with three things in poker that I am thankful for today. And number one, the first thing that came to my mind this morning is Lynn Gilmartin. Lynn Gilmartin is an international treasure. Okay, I want to tell you guys a quick story about Lynn. If you want to fast forward through this, it'll only take about two minutes. But when I was just a young man and arriving in Australia for the first time ever, as a result of my having won a $32 satellite on cakepoker.com, which no longer exists. I landed in the beautiful city of Melbourne. Uh, I checked into my hotel, which was the Crown Casino Hotel. Very, very lavish, very beautiful. And I was very excited to be there. One of the first events that happened when I arrived was what they called the Aussie Millions players party. Now I had won a seat in the 10k Aussie Millions. I was extremely excited to play. I think I had never played a 10k before. It's possible I may have played just one main event at this point. So this was at least 13 or 14 years ago. So we're taking it back guys. It may have been more like 16 or 17 years ago. I have to do the math at some point. Anyway, uh, at the players party, there were a full buffet, food, drinks, and lots of people that I was really, really overwhelmed to see. We're talking Gus Hansen. We're talking Phil Ivey. We're talking Tom Dwan. And little old me sitting there kind of overwhelmed, 
I wasn't able to find the people that I was supposed to meet up with from the website at this point, but there was a woman, a beautiful young Australian woman, and she introduced herself to me and she said, hello, I'm meeting all the players here at the party and we're doing some interviews for Poker News. And I said, well, I don't know if you want to interview me. I'm just a satellite winner from New York and it's my first time in Australia. Well, sure enough, they get the camera rolling and she talks about how the Aussie Millions attracts players from around the globe and even coming as far as from New York, which was about a 21-hour flight. <laughs> so, yeah, no joke here. And then, uh, you know, here I am kind of fresh off the plane and not even sure if I wanted to go to this party, but thinking I didn't want to miss any of the events at the Aussie Millions. A little bit jet-lagged and a little delirious, but I think I gave her a pretty good interview. I made her laugh a few times and then found out that Lynn is actually from Melbourne. And every time I've ever seen her since that first day, when I think she could tell that I was a bit deer in the headlights, like in over my head, like what am I doing being interviewed on a red carpet in a big poker event that includes some of the biggest names in the game? You know, like Negranu was there, Phil Hellmuth was there. Everybody used to go to the Aussie Millions back in those days. And so the fact that she gave me a few minutes of camera time just to get another story as like kind of the, the new kid on the block, if you will, and even allowed me to plug my comedy a little bit. I think I had a YouTube page going and that was about it at that point. Uh, over the years, over the many, many years, every single time I've ever seen Lynn at any event, she always gives me a big smile and a wave. Hello, Clayton. How are you, how are you going? That's how Australians ask how you're doing. And you know, she just really is somebody that I wish everyone in poker would have a heart as big as Lynn Gilmartin does, you know, and I see her, how her career has grown and she's done so many great things. Now she's of course the host of the world poker tour, but there were a lot of other steps along the way. And I followed her career over all these years. And I've even had a chance to play poker with her once or twice. And, uh, you know, I just, I wish that we had more Lynn's in the world of poker. Uh, thing number two that I am thankful for on this Thanksgiving weekend is the big blind ante. Now, I don't know if you guys even remember um, years ago in live poker. Some of you are too young to remember this, but every player used to have to ante every hand after a certain level. Like the first few levels, there would be no ante back then. And then they would start to have, oh, okay, everybody has to put in a 25 chip. Not 25K, but literally 25. So the blinds might be like, 100 and 200 and each player had to put in 25 <laughs> tournament units and so you know everything was just convoluted and sometimes players wouldn't keep their antes in front of them they just throw them into the pot and now the dealer has to sort out well we have nine players at the table but only eight of you have anteed who didn't ante up and it would slow the game down and even led to a bizarre and hilarious argument during the world series of poker main event many years ago between Prahlad Friedman and Australian pro Jeffrey Lissandro. Uh, they actually argued, and I put my ante in. No, you didn't, and they had cameras. And uh, Anyway, that's a good thing to Google if you're on YouTube and you want to find the old footage of, of the, you know, the big like anti-gate or whatever. It like, really got heated where I think at one point uh, Jeffrey threatened to like knock his head off or something like that 
Which reminds me, guys, I love Australian people, but don't, you know, don't, don't piss them off. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it was a real game changer when the big blind ante became how we do it, when that became the norm. Uh, and a lot of players resisted it, especially, I remember there was a lot of discussion around final tables and how the big blind ante is too big a proportion of the final pot. If you've got only three or four players remaining in the tournament, maybe we should cut the big blind ante in half at that point, just because players don't like something that's different. And they didn't understand at that point how they would need to adjust their ranges. Now, those of us who play live on a regular basis, we've come to consider the big blind ante as something we just have come to expect as part of a regular tournament structure. It was revolutionary in the game, and it now makes you a little safer at the poker table because no one threatens to knock your head off anymore for not putting your ante in the pot. And uh, the third thing I want to list on my Thanksgiving I'm thankful for list is, of course, you, our listeners. You know, I took over as host of this very podcast five years ago in November of 2018 And it's been a delightful five years for me just to get into the habit of recording a podcast each and every week, usually by myself, because most of our poker playing friends are either too busy or too flaky to actually keep their commitments and come on here with me. Uh, I know a lot of you enjoy the interview episodes more, but I feel like most of us have kind of gotten into a groove where we enjoy this quality time that we get to have together, just you and me. Uh, at least from my standpoint, it is one of the most important relationships in my life, the one that I have with you, the listener to this podcast. I feel like taking the time to think about poker and analyze hands and maybe make some fun about what's going on in the poker world week in and week out has really affected me in a very positive way, my psyche, my spirit. It, it fills my soul. And so I don't know what this podcast means to you, but I can tell you it means a lot more to me than you may even realize. So I just want to thank you guys for always being there uh, through all the changes that that have happened with this podcast over the many years uh, since I took over as host. And I just want to thank you for always supporting us, whether it's by tweeting at Clayton Comic and telling me what you think of our latest episode by being active on the TPE Discord, or of course by subscribing so that you make sure you download each and every episode we put out. Of course, rating, reviewing, all those things that every podcast host wants you to do. I'm telling you guys, this means a lot to me personally. Of course, it means a lot to Tournament Poker Edge as an entity, but on a personal level, like in my heart, I feel the love, guys. And as a middle child, that means a lot. (laughs) Anyway, let's get on with it. Enough sappy Thanksgiving stuff. Let's get into our review of last week's hands. You may recall at the towards the end of last week's episode, I discussed a few hands from the $1,000 World Series of Poker online bounty event. This event awards a bracelet for players who are able to be physically located in the state of New Jersey or Nevada. So I was competing against New Jersey and Nevada's 
best and brightest. And last week we talked about a few hands that I promised this week we would check my lines, if you will, and maybe like analyze my strategy a bit using a tool called GTO Wizard, which I am absolutely falling in love with. I've never seen a poker analysis study and practice and solver tool all in one that is easier to use or more intuitive. I am not a tech savvy person by any stretch. Many of you made fun of the fact that my laptop appears to be from 1997 when I did the live stream, the time when Derek Killingbird Tenbush couldn't do it because he was at a football game and he has his priorities straight. But yeah, I... I'm not a tech guy, okay? I don't know how to do coding. I don't know what Minecraft is. I don't know anything about... I'm terrible with solvers. I've tried other solvers in the past, and I just couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do or what they were trying to tell me. GTO Wizard makes it easy for guys like me to get better at poker using artificial intelligence. But I'm literally obsessed with GTO Wizard. It is changing the way... I study poker, I'm, I enjoy it, I'm spending more time doing practice drills, plugging hands in and looking at hands that I've already played. You can upload your hands from another folder, which in my case is the hand history folder from my ACR poker account. So I'm looking at all the hands I've played there and it's just, it's so easy to use and it teaches you leaks in your game and how to fix them. So I love this product, I'm giving it my full endorsement. Click the link in the description of this podcast and you can save 10% on your first purchase of GTO Wizard. I promise you'll be so glad you did. It is changing my game each and every day and I think it can change yours too. All right, let's get into it, guys. We just reviewing from last week. Uh, the first hand we talked about was before we actually reached the money, maybe 70 or 80 spots away from the money. And you may recall... The action folded to us in the small blind with King-9 offsuit. We have a loose, aggressive opponent in the big blind. And we're sitting on 80,000 at 1K, 2K. The loose, aggressive opponent in the big blind has only about 36,000. So he's sitting on 18 times the big blind. And uh, our thinking was if we raise, then he won't ever bluff shove against that raise or maybe not ever, but it, it wouldn't be as attractive for him to do so as it might be if we just limp in and we can get him to make it three big blinds with a lot of hands and then we can shove and probably take it down a lot, which of course is what we would want to do when we have a monster like ace king, king king, both of which we block. So that was my logic there. So I limped in and then of course opponent did make it three big blinds and then we shoved 18 big blinds over the top of that and I was pretty proud of myself because I thought I had a lot of logic and I, I had a good reasoning for why I did what I did. But the solver absolutely hates it. The solver never ever does what I did here. It doesn't mind three betting, which I thought was interesting like putting in about six big blinds. So if villain makes it three, then we just kind of, you know, click it back plus a little bit more and make it six big blinds. I guess the logic there is when villain is bluffing, now villain is in a horrible spot. Does he really want to put in six of his 18 big blinds at that point? And I think the answer would be 
know, so many players would fold a hand with decent equity. Uh, but usually it's a it's a call. It's almost a pure call, honestly, guys. It's 82% of the time a call with the rest, just that cute little three bet, just about 18% of the time. So yeah, this is not something I ever do. I mean, yeah, I limp call, but I don't limp and then three bet when my opponent in the big blind has only 18 big blinds. It feels very, very foreign to me to ever do that. And uh, yeah, now the wizard wants to do it almost one-fifth of the time, about one-sixth of the time. So very interesting, um, something I never do that GTO wizard wants me to start doing. So I'm going to look for spots where this kind of play makes sense. And it looks like having king nine is a time to find once in a while that sort of unorthodox and tricky play. So yeah, I definitely didn't see that one coming. But as far as my play goes, 0.0%. The solver hates it. Obviously, you can only get called by a better hand. And at least theoretically, six big blinds would do the same work that my 18 big blinds did, which is getting all of Villain's bluffs to fold. All right, the next hand we worked on last time was uh, at the same blind level, 1K, 2K, but I had been moved to a new table and a player in early position raised to 4,500, so just like 2.3x, and uh, that player had 55 bigs, two players called with 30 bigs and 40 bigs respectively, and at that point, I was in the big blind with the king-queen offsuit, and I did discuss last week that you could squeeze because, you know, you block pocket kings, pocket queens, ace-king, and ace-queen, but that I thought it might be worthwhile to just call and see the flop the solver agrees but does raise about 33 percent of the time so it's a 67 percent call and 33 percent raise so i chose the play that we should be mostly doing unfortunately for this particular hand because it's multi-way there isn't really a solver solution yet for all the trillions of possibilities for how this hand could actually go so uh, I'll stop this hand right there, and let's move quickly to hand number three and hear what the wizard has to say. So we were in the money. The blinds were 1,200, 2,400 with a 200 ante per player. About 100 players left in the tournament were in the money. I have an above average stack. The average stack at this point was right around 100,000, and we had 150,000 in the stack. The blinds were 1,200, 2,400. So we have about 60 big blinds in the hijack and the action folds to me with queen 10 offsuit. I made it 4,800 and the big blind calls. So far, so good. The solver is always opening queen 10 in this situation. So I get a check mark there. The big blind is uh, one of the chip leaders in the whole tournament. He's got us almost covered by double. Anyway, the flop comes uh, 10 of hearts, 8 of spades, deuce of diamonds. Again, we have queen 10, the big blind checked. I decided to bet 4,600 into the 13,000 pot. And the wizard approves my play, but doesn't love it. 15% uh, of the time, we're going to be betting one third. But the favorite play in this spot is actually an over bet. About 10% over the pot size, which you don't often see on the flop. I was very surprised by this output. But yeah, I need to, but one thing I'm learning about my play 
is I need to look for spots to bet bigger on the flop, right? So I guess the idea is you'd want to be kind of over betting with a lot of draws like Jack nine or Queen Jack. So we can also over bet on this board, which is a rainbow board, um, but it's 10, eight deuce rainbow. And uh, apparently on this board at this stack depth, betting bigger is better. It also prefers a 60% pot bet to the one that I did. But yeah, I got a 15%, like it's a correct play, but it's not the, the most preferred play. So I found that interesting. Turn comes the deuce of spades, which pairs the board, the big blind checks. And now I'm betting 18,000 into the 22,000 pot. So it's about 80%-ish of the pot and the big blind called again. As far as my line, Solver actually checks when the deuce pairs on the turn about 70% of the time, which really surprised me, guys. I mean, apparently the deuce changes nothing, but we're not going for three streets of value. I guess we have a medium strength top pair hand and we don't want to get outplayed. I guess there's also, you know, just a lot more deuce in our opponent's range than there is in ours. So checking behind kind of allows the pot to stay at a reasonable size for when we are beat by, you know, deuce X or whatever. But yeah, I was very surprised to see the strongly preferred play on this card is actually a check. So go figure, right? I mean, that's why we do this because we can learn from the solver. Anyway, uh, when the solver does bet, my sizing is preferred about 80% of the pot, but only about 20% of the time overall, because again, we are checking 70% of the time and then about a half pot bet about 10% of the time. So that's the breakdown 70, 20, 10. I found that interesting. I would probably not be inclined to check such a safe card behind, but I guess I could see the value. For example, if we're beat on the flop, this controls the size of the pot. Also, we're in position, so we're not going to risk losing value on the river. We can always overbet on the river if we really like the action and the card and all of that. So, I mean, I guess I get it. It might be hard to get three streets of value with just queen 10 on 10, eight, deuce, deuce. So this feels like a pot control thing. And also maybe it'll induce a few bluffs if the uh, big blind is a savvy player and knows that he or she will have more trips than we will that player might be more inclined to bet on the river if we check on the turn so in a sense we may be inducing more bluffs when we are ahead but also making you know when we get owned we don't get owned for as big of a price so i i like it i get it but i did not think of it at the time i was like well that deuce changes nothing let's bet big <laughs> anyway if you do bet you should bet big according to the solver but again 70 percent check on that card a lot of lessons in there the river comes the six of hearts so our final board is 10 8 deuce deuce six and no flush got there the straight that got there is nine seven which i suppose both of us probably have some amount of that in our ranges and uh the big blind check i decided to check behind on the river you know i've already bet pretty big on the turn and when you get called you i just chickened out you guys re may remember this i said i chickened out but i wondered if the solver would sometimes bet or if it's a mixed strategy 
No, guys, the solver bets 100% of the time. Now, the big blind, I suppose, if the big blind has a deuce, the big blind would, would probably lead a lot on the end. Um, maybe we're able to get a lot of calls because the board ran out so clean. We might be able to get action from like an eight, obviously a worse 10. So I guess that's why we're supposed to bet. The solver prefers about a 60% pot bet. So again, I'm very surprised by the solver output. When the solver doesn't bet 60%, the GTO wizard is betting some amount every time, whether it's a lot more than that, a little bit more than that, a very tiny bet just to try to get some value, whatever it is, there are no checks. So this is a pure error <laughs> on my part. And so I really need to study this hand and figure out exactly what went wrong. All right, so enough about last week's hands. Let's get into this week's hands, guys. We're in the money. There are 75 players remaining in this bracelet event. Something like 1,500 people entered it. So, you know, I'm feeling good. I've got a few bounties in my pocket. I'm loving life, and I'm starting to dream of a bracelet. Uh, the average stack at this point is about 130,000, and that's exactly what we have at the level of 1,500. 3,000. So our M is about 20. We've got something like 43 big blinds and we're at a new table and there are a lot of good players that I have marked down as sharks. Not surprisingly, when you get down to the last few tables, there will invariably be some very good players remaining at that point. So one of these sharks makes it 7,500 from the low jack and he's got 230,000 in his stack, so he's doing great at this point in the tournament. Uh, pretty decent reg that I have played with quite a bit. Uh, calls in the very next seat, so he's in the hijack with 240,000. So both of these guys have me covered, meaning that our 43 big blind stack will be the effective stack for this hand. The action folds to me in the big blind and I've got the Ace of Hearts, Nine of Hearts. Uh, certainly, it's worth discussing at least, should we just go ahead and make it like 28 or 30K and try to take this pot down, maybe get one of these two guys to call and then feel free to get all in on a nine high flop or a flop that has two hearts. Uh, I think that's there's a lot of value in that line and if you occasionally want to mix in a suited ace into your pre-flop three bet squeezing range uh, you certainly can i decided there was just too much value in seeing a flop even though we'll be out of position i feel like now this pot is big enough now that it's gone raise call if i happen to flop something that i'm willing to go with it shouldn't be too hard to get all the chips in on the flop so I'm thinking if it comes like six, seven, eight with one heart or you know, really any two hearts, obviously, maybe nine high, depending on what the other two cards are, we can go with it. Obviously, if I flop really well, like if it's, you know, two nines on the flop, then it becomes a no brainer. And just, you know, what is the best way to trick these guys into putting more chips in? But obviously, we're not sitting here expecting to flop trips. Anyway, I did decide to call pre-flop, but if you want to squeeze, I, I'm not going to really argue with that too much. So now I call, and 
there is about 27,000 in the middle and we have about another 125-ish behind. So the SPR three-handed is five. And the flop comes nine of clubs, eight of clubs, five of diamonds. So nine, eight, five with two clubs. Hero with the ace of hearts, nine of hearts for top pair, no backdoors whatsoever, top kicker. And I check, of course, and the original Razor bets 13,500, which is half the pot, and the other player calls. Now, what I did next may surprise you, and I really sincerely doubt that the solver is going to approve, but I folded. I felt like I was in a way behind or way ahead situation, and given the fact that two respected, good, talented players are putting so many chips into this pot, I just didn't feel like ace nine was any good. I had no back doors. I could be drawing dead if somebody flopped the nuts or a set. And just that call in between us is so strong. I mean, his pre-flop call is very strong, but now calling on the flop a half pot bet with me in the big blind waiting to act on such a wet board, I just, I didn't really think that I had much chance of winning this hand. So I decided to get out despite having flopped top pair, top kicker. I went check, it went bet, bet, and I went fold, I'll see you guys later. I'm out of here, okay? I folded, and then a whole lot of chips proceeded to go in, and the players had pocket aces, our original Razor had pocket aces, and the other guy had pocket sevens. So even though I did have the caller beat, he also had a backdoor flush draw with it because he held the seven of clubs as well. So I was not in good shape. I mean, I almost definitely can't beat pocket aces unless a miracle comes another nine. So I have two outs. But, you know, even if he has pocket kings, sure, I have a few more outs. But this other player calling was really a problem for me. He could be slow playing seven, six. He's calling now because he blocks seven, six. And the way he sees it, even if this other player has pocket queens, pocket kings, he should have about six outs plus the backdoor clubs that may or may not be good and possibly even some cards that he can turn his sevens into a bluff. I think I made the right decision. Uh, I don't want to be too results oriented or let the confirmation bias creep in or anything. But at the time, this just felt a little too muddy and murky for me. So I just folded ace nine on a nine high flop, something I probably would not normally do. And I'm very curious to see what the solver thinks of my play in this hand. The aces did manage to hold up and win a very large pot. The player with pocket sevens ends up losing half his stack in this hand. So it was a big one. He started with 80 big blinds and he ended the hand with about 40. So yeah, that was a, a pretty pivotal hand in this tournament. And I suppose I could say I dodged bullets, baby. Let's fast forward one more hand. Uh, from this tournament, the blinds were at 2,000 and 4,500 ante, and there were only 55 players remaining out of the 1,500 or so who entered. So I'm down to the wire now, guys. We're at the final six tables. Very exciting. Uh, the average stack at this point was almost 200,000. We had just 130 in our stack. So we're a little below average now, but just happy to still be in the game. 
we've collected you know x number of bounties and all that so we're feeling fine one fold to me and i have pocket aces in second position we've got about 32 33 big blinds our m is about 13 uh yeah i, I definitely advocate for playing the pocket aces so I hope no one's surprised by that. <laughs> Kidding aside, sometimes we limp early position with pocket aces. I don't really do that because I don't have enough other hands that I limp and then back raise with. So whenever I do that, I probably would have aces. And I haven't really developed a really credible kind of bluffing range. I guess you could do it sometimes with ace five suited, you know, my favorite ace five suited. Uh, but yeah, I just figure I'm raising when I enter from early position i play a really tight range anyway i'm raising with all of the hands that i want to get involved with so especially at 30 bigs we, you know, we have to try to build a, a little bit of a pot so that we can create a favorable spr on the flop so that when we flop an over pair we can reasonably expect to get the whole stack in even when we're ahead and not only those times when we are behind i think limping is dangerous and i don't recommend it but i understand it is possible to construct a range that allows it to be relatively unexploitable. I just haven't delved into that, so I don't want to do that, especially with so many good players remaining in the tournament. I'm just going to raise here. I'm also going to raise with ace-king and ace-queen and other value hands like pocket tens. I'm going to have a few bluffs mixed in. I will sometimes raise with ace-five suited, ace-four suited, and possibly even a suited connector like some eight seven suited uh, but mostly when i open from early position i am exploitably value heavy anyway so i have a <laughs> ultimate value hand here and i make it eighty thousand uh, eight thousand rather with uh pocket aces and the action folds to the small blind who's got about an average stack he's got about 190 and he calls the big blind has only 22 big blinds he's got ninety thousand, and he calls to getting a very good price so it's pocket aces against the blinds three-handed the pot is now twenty-six thousand, and the flop comes nine of diamonds six of hearts five of spades nine six five now in the previous hand it was nine eight five and this time it's nine six five so we are getting these three middle cards flops and now this is really tricky I didn't love it when I flopped like this and had ace nine, but do I love it when I have pocket aces? Let's see, the small blind leads right out for 8,500 and the big blind calls. So again, we have two opponents. This reminds me so much of the previous hand, but a lot of things are different. Like there's a big difference, I think, between having pocket aces and having ace nine. Also, it's not as draw heavy of a board as the previous hand because in that hand if you recall there were two clubs on the flop and this flop is rainbow however i'm still concerned i don't know how many players would lead right out with a hand that can beat pocket aces though i'm not sure wouldn't you want to check and hope that clayton has an over pair like if you flopped a set or two pair or something really strong like a straight wouldn't you want to check to me and then spring the trap i don't know i mean i'm sure you should lead out sometimes for value but i think that in practice most of us don't do that a lot so it i can kind of discount the small blind having a monster he may just be trying to like see where he's at or set the price 
maybe with a hand like 7-6, which would be middle pair with a gut shot. And that makes sense to me. Like maybe he's got that type of, he's got something for sure. It's very, very uncommon for a player to just lead right out after all this action with a hand like King Jack. So he's got something. He could have like four tray. So he's semi-bluffing with the bottom end of a straight draw. I mean, who knows, right? Really, who knows? It's unorthodox for him to just wake up and bet. I'm more concerned about the big blind who may just be flatting here with very strong hands like pocket sixes for a set, which is exactly how I would play pocket sixes in his shoes, especially starting off with 22 big blinds. I don't really care too much about getting sucked out on. I'm obviously never folding a set anyway. Just by calling this bet, I'm essentially committing myself to the pot. So I'm not overly concerned. Look, when you start so short stacked, you can't worry about everything. It's okay to slow play a little bit more when you have a shorter stack because you can take those risks to try to build the pot and get into the tournament again, right? I mean, he's starting off with about half an average stack with 55 players remaining. If he wants to have a stack for the final table, this may be a spot where he can go ahead and gamble with a set rather than blowing both of us out of the pot, right? Like how would I react with aces if it goes bet raise? Maybe he can get the aces to fold, which he does not want when he's got us beat. So that's why in his shoes, if he's got a monster, I really like flatting. Anyway, uh, I'm sitting there with pocket aces. It goes one third of the pot bet and then another player calls. So what to do with pocket aces? I decided, I don't know what's going on here. I'm more concerned about the caller than I am about the better, but either way, I'm not folding yet, guys. I'm calling and we're going to see a turn card. With 52,000 in the middle, the turn comes the nine of spades. So our board is now nine of diamonds, six of hearts, five of spades, nine of spades. So pairing the board and also adding another spade. And now both opponents check to me. I have no idea what they bet and called with on the flop. I guess it's not a nine. I decided to dip my toe in the water here and I just bet 9,000 into 52K. Such an annoying sizing by me, I think. And that's what I was kind of going for. I just want to go for a little bit of value from a hand like 7-6 or 5-4 or 4-3, right? There are so many little like pair with a draw or just a little bit of a draw and they have to be worried that they could be drawing dead. So I don't want to overbet on this card because I'm worried that I can't get action unless I'm beat. So I think by betting 9 into 52, I can actually get a curious call from a hand, especially if that hand feels like there are certain cards that could come to give them a winner. Why not just put in 9,000 and see what comes on the river? By the way, guys, if I get any kind of action at all, I'm not going to bet again. And if either one of these guys chooses to raise me, I think the plan just has to be, let's throw these aces away. You know, we got totally owned and outplayed on this hand. I'm not going to make them show me the winner. Like if you can bluff me on this board, good for you. You win the pot and my aces are in the muck. Anyway, instead, both of my opponents folded for 9K, which is so weird. It was on the flop. It was like bet 8K and call. And now on the turn, it's check, check. I bet 9K and they both fold. I don't think you would see this on most of the websites where a lot of us are playing, but sometimes late in a bracelet event 
on WSOP.com where all the players come from New Jersey and Nevada only, you do see some unusual things. I would love, love to know what both of these guys had. Like, what did you wake up and bet with 8,000 on the flop that you can't bet on the turn or you can't call a bet on the turn? Very strange, right? I guess six five, maybe, right? Like if you're leading out with bottom two pair and now you just got counterfeited or something. But I don't know. Like I think for 9,000, you might even want to call <laughs> with those hands. Anyway, guys, uh, I did last a long time in this tournament. I actually made the final table. I think I got seventh place in this one. I, I was really close to winning uh, my first ever bracelet. It would have been an asterisk. I collected, I think, four bounties, and I got a nice prize for this one. I think I ended up winning about six or seven thousand dollars. So the bounties were three hundred each, and the prize pool six hundred dollars per player, with one hundred going to the rake. So yeah, it was a pretty sizable online event, but nothing compared to what we've got going on right now on ACR Poker with our Winter Online Super Series, guys. If you haven't yet joined. ACR Poker. Now is the time. We have a link in the description of this podcast. All you do is click that link and then you can get a first time deposit bonus up to $2,000. 100% of your deposit. They'll double it just by entering the promo code TPE. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, with special thanks as always to our very generous sponsor, ACR Poker. I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening and happy Thanksgiving. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart.
love nobody. Yeah.